You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And the Orioles have won the game! And welcome to it. Thanks for being with us here on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Life, Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. And Jeff, uh, there are a couple of players who kind of defined those five years of winning between 2012 and 2016. And one of those players will be a guest today, uh, James Jerry Hardy, uh, better known as JJ, a three-time Gold Glove Award winner, a two-time All-Star, and one heck of a solid player. And one heck of an acquisition as well. I mean, you take the two players that he was acquired for from the Twins. I mean, it was a great move by Andy McPhail, and he was a big part of what made those Orioles teams so good for so long. He rediscovered his, his power when he was with the Orioles 2011 through 2013. He hits more home runs than any American League shortstop and then takes the step forward. And even though he was never flashy, he ends up winning a couple of different gold gloves. And um, the way he mentored other players, he just was a critical part of what made those Orioles teams so good. And I think to appreciate J.J., uh, well, first of all, you have to understand you need that piece, that shortstop, good defender, uh, if you're going to have a, a winning ball club. And there was a run between Miguel Tejada and J.J. where the Orioles just could not find anyone to properly uh, play that position offensively or defensively. And uh, I interviewed Andy McPhail, you know, in the midst of the winning, I can't tell you if it was 2013 or 2014 off the top of my head. And we went through the acquisitions because obviously, you know, Dan Duquette and Buck Showalter had a lot to do with those winning teams. Uh, but Andy's foot, uh, fingerprints were all over him. Uh, with a lot of important trades and acquisitions of other kinds, draft picks included. And I asked him, what, what's the biggest trade? What's the best trade? Because they absolutely fleeced the Seattle Mariners to get Jones and Tillman for Eric Bedard on a one-year rental. And he says it's J.J. Hardy. They gave up Brett Jacobson and Jim Hoey. And uh, you have a 30-home running uh, shortstop uh, who can pick it and throw it to first base with the best of them. And also, you know, a really stoic, uh, solid clubhouse guy. Uh, that that's one heck of a trade right there. And a clubhouse guy who, by the way, kept everybody pretty honest on the ping pong table. That was one of the better stories I think that we got from JJ over the course of the podcast. How Jason Hamill eventually beat him and JJ talking about, I, I went and got my, my paddle and I wasn't fully ready to go, but, but they managed to beat me. And that's maybe one of the things that people don't fully appreciate about JJ Hardy is even though he, he maybe wasn't flashy as, as we all kind of know. And as he talked about on our podcast, how he would always find a way to get it done and how good of an athlete that he was. I mean, now his, his latest venture has been a moving into pickleball in his, his post uh, playing days. And uh, Hardy second round pick by Milwaukee in 01 uh, came of age there when they were getting good again, I believe and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but it coincides with the rise of, of Prince Fielder and, and Ryan Braun and, uh, he was a big part of some of those teams. And then he, he struggles there, uh, goes to Minnesota, and then gets traded to Baltimore where it looked like his career was on its way down. 
but then he plays for Baltimore on two separate lucrative contracts, seven years with the Orioles, uh, three different playoff teams, 107 home runs, those gold gloves, and those all-star appearances. So uh, what a trade, but, you know, J.J. Hardy is an Orioles Hall of Famer one day. There's no doubt about that. So let's get to it. J.J. Hardy on the podcast. Joining us right now in Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite, is someone, well, let's just put it this way. If there was a ground ball hit to him, it was an out at shortstop. A man who played for Baltimore for seven seasons, a part of three playoff teams. J.J. Hardy joins us right now. J.J., how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really good. Well, tell us about life uh, right now uh, for you after baseball. We had a chance to talk a little bit in spring training, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, but tell us about life right now for you post-baseball. Uh, raising two boys, um, taking up lots of time, lots of hobbies, got into cycling, got into some woodworking, uh, been playing a lot of pickleball, um, staying pretty busy. How are you as a pickleball player? Uh, okay, I guess. I don't know. Um, I mean, I played for a couple months, but, um, I really enjoyed it and got pretty competitive. I was looking for better players to play and, um, trying to up my level, but, uh, the people that I did end up running into were professionals and they made me feel like I wasn't good at all. My, my father-in-law is obsessed. He uh, subscribes to the famous magazine Pickleball Weekly. So yeah. uh, if, you, if you get that magazine, then you're really into it. But I'm trying to get it. It's a fun game. It's a game where you can get to, I think, average pretty quickly. It's getting yeah. beyond average, which is difficult. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can find a pretty big group of players to play against and have a lot of fun. With two young kids, what have been some of the activities that you guys have done with uh, all of us being stuck inside? Well, we came up to we came up to Montana about five weeks ago, where um, apparently this state has been social distancing for as long as it's been a state, so it's been pretty easy to to go outside <laughs> and play. Um, but I mean, it's uh, it was a little tougher in Arizona. I mean, there was a lot more TV than we would have liked to, our four year old to be watching. Um, but the minute you take that TV away from him, he turned into a much better kid. So getting up here was a good idea. And JJ, for you, who I know your, your family roots in sports, uh, in golf and in tennis and legendary inside that Orioles clubhouse with ping pong. And now you play pickleball and you're like a man of many, many, many skills, uh, for your boys. Uh, do you see a, a, a bat and a glove in their future? Or what do you think? The two year old? Yes. I think the two year old is going to be a little stud. The four and a half year old doesn't want anything to do with a baseball, doesn't want anything to do with a ball. Um, I think he might be into music or something. I, we we're trying to figure out what he's going to do. Maybe he's going to be a swimmer, but the two-year-old is definitely a little athlete. You grew up, both of your, your parents were professional athletes. One was in tennis and one was in golf. Um, so how did you end up a professional baseball player when you had two parents that played two other professional sports? Well, luckily, they didn't force me to, to play either of their sports. I did play a little bit. Um, you know, I went to tennis camps, and I took a few lessons from my mom in golf, but I uh, didn't really take those sports too seriously like I did baseball. I think I just enjoyed playing baseball, and they just kind of pointed me in the direction and said, have fun, and uh, whatever we can do to help, they helped. Um, my brother took tennis, and he took golf a little bit more serious and got really, really good at those sports. but. For me, I just, um, I just stuck with baseball. But something tells me, and I don't know how often you play golf, but you could, like, shoot under 80 tomorrow if, if you just went out. 
Uh, you know, it's, I've played probably maybe five times in the last two years. Like since I've been done playing baseball, like it's just one of those things that I'm not doing nearly as much as I thought I would have. Um, and it's a hit or miss. I mean, I, I would say my average day is like 82. Like if I go out there and shoot 82, that's what I expect to shoot. If I shoot under that, I played good. If I shoot worse, I played bad. So is it possible that I shoot in the seventies? Maybe. Um, but I, I say 82 is my number. You're well known for your ping pong skills in the Orioles clubhouse. How many guys beat you uh, when, when they challenge you to ping pong? Huh. I don't know. <laughs> not very many. Um, I do remember Jason Hamill uh, beat me. I think he was the first player to beat me when I was an Oriole, and it took a couple of years for anyone to do that. But uh, he got me when I wasn't, I wasn't ready. Um, I was just sitting in my locker, and he says, hey, you want to you wanna play ping pong? Eh, not really. He goes, come on, let's play. I'm like, okay. So I get my paddle out of my locker. We go play, and it's a pretty close game. It was like 15-15. And then all of a sudden you realize the entire clubhouse is surrounding the table and it's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And he ends up winning like 23, 21. And I shake his hand. Good job. You got me. I walk back to my locker. I pull out my phone and I had already had texts from people in Arizona um, spring training saying, heard you lost in ping pong. And I'm like, golly, word, word travels fast, but it, it took a few years before I lost in, in the Orioles clubhouse. It seemed to me, just as a total media outsider, that those Orioles teams were very close. And if, if, if chemistry matters, and I think it does, that you guys really, especially in that 2012, 2013, 2014 run, had a particularly a very tight-knit group. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, we were getting to the field really early. We had, we had ping pong. We had bumper pool. We had, um, you know, guys were playing cards. It was just a group that um, enjoyed being around each other. Um, you know, I feel like uh, there was teams that I'd been on that didn't, didn't do any of that. Like they'd show up, you know, they'd put your, your uniform on, maybe you go and you go uh, stretch or work out or do what you got to do to get ready to play the game, but you weren't having fun um, like that team did. So yeah, you um, being an outsider looking in, you definitely saw it the way it was. Who are the couple of guys that, that brought it all together that made it such a family like atmosphere? Man, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could give a lot of credit to um, front office and, and coaching staff. I mean, because we brought in, you know, we brought in some guys. Um, and I think that they were looking at, uh, you know, personalities and stuff and seeing how well they'd mesh. But um, I don't know who to give credit to. I, mean, I feel like it just was a group that, you know, fell together and, and worked out pretty good. Andy McPhail made a number of successful trades as the general manager of the Orioles. I mean, the famous Bedard Mariners trade for five players, including Tillman and Jones, coming back to Baltimore, Miguel Tejada to Houston. There were a number of them. But he told me years afterwards that the best trade he ever made was getting J.J. Hardy from the Minnesota Twins. So my question to you is, J.J., do you know the two players who went to Minnesota for you? Um, one of them – and I think Hoey, right, was his yep, last name. That's one. That threw 100 just because um, I think we, uh, we played against them a year that he was with Minnesota. But the other one, um, I would maybe be just guessing it's like a Jacobson or something like that. You got it. Brett Jacobson. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know that um, I ever met him or, or saw him play. So that was kind of a guess. But 
for, for you in that moment, uh, your career, you had some injuries in Milwaukee. Obviously, you had some big years in Milwaukee for some really competitive, uh, interesting teams. But obviously, at that point, you're kind of trying to reestablish yourself. Take us through uh, learning about that trade to Baltimore and what you thought it meant for your career. Well, I guess I'll start a year before that. Um, the year I was getting traded from Milwaukee, I had an off year after probably my best season in the big leagues in 08. And um, got sent down with like 20 days left before um, I had five years. And it was, it was basically letting me know, like, you're going to get traded this year to whoever we trade you. They're going to have your rights for two years versus one before you become a free agent. And this was really the first time that I realized how much a, a, this sport was a business. And so it changed my perspective on a lot of things. But I got traded to the Twins that year. My first round of batting practice with the Twins I'm, you know, I'm trying to pull the ball. I'm trying to hit the ball hard, do it like I did and I had success doing in Milwaukee. And they say, well, what are you trying to do there? And I go, I'm just trying to drive the ball. And for me, in order to drive the ball, I felt like it had to be left center to, you know, left field only. That's where my power was. And they go, no, that's not what we want. We want you to hit the ball over the second baseman's head. We want your hands right here by your ears. And it was basically trying to get me to be a right-handed Joe Maurer. And so I go, all right. So I did that. I hit 268, I think, with six home runs and um, thought that, okay, that's if that's what they want, that's what I'll do. And then I get traded that offseason because I didn't have enough power. So I, it kind of left a sour taste in my mouth doing exactly what they asked me to do, and um, it wasn't good enough. And then um, when I go to Baltimore, my first round of BP, I hit like six or seven line drives over the second baseman's head, and Jim Presley, the hitting coach, goes, what are you doing? And I go, I'm just trying to stay through the ball. And he goes, uh, he goes, uh, no, 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 no. That's not what we want. He goes, when I saw you in Milwaukee, you were driving the ball to left center and left field. That's what we want. And I go, okay. And so, you know, I start drive, I start turning on the ball, rolling over quite a few, but hitting some balls hard. And uh, that year I ended up hitting 30. I'm like, all right, so that's what they want. And then uh, the Orioles wanted to keep me around. From 2011 to 2013, I think you hit more home runs than any shortstop in the American League. So what was kind of like you're, you're looking back at it right now when you're just like, all right, th this guy wanted me to hit the ball over the second baseman's head, and then suddenly I'm transformed by just making this small adjustment into a, a guy that can hit with some power and, and put some runs on the board? Well, it was, um, it was kind of what I did in Milwaukee before I changed to start hitting the ball the other way. Um, it may have made me a better hitter, like, for average, but with Baltimore giving me the confidence and letting me know that that's not what they wanted, they wanted me to drive the ball and be more productive, um, it just helped me uh, really confident. So when I rolled over a ball, which I did quite a bit, I didn't feel as bad because that's what, um, you know, that was what my approach was, and that was going to happen when you do that. You signed two extensions uh, with Baltimore, which you, you never see, you see like maybe the, the big, you know, now seven, eight, whatever year deal. And then maybe you see the three or four year deal, but rarely do you see that kind of double up, which is what you did, uh, which is kind of interesting. But uh, you sign here at that point, still mired in 14 years of losing. Could you see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, as far as the turnaround was concerned? I did. I mean, I saw, and, and what I saw, um, it didn't turn out to be what I was thinking, but when I came over there and I saw guys like, you know, Mattis and Jake Arrieta and all these other pitchers that I'm like, golly, like um, really, really good arms. And um, we, we hit, I mean, even in 2011, we were scoring runs. It wasn't like we weren't scoring runs. So 
to see those young pitchers and then us scoring runs, um, I did see, I did see it turning around and um, it didn't turn out the way that I thought with, you know, Arietta getting traded and um, him having all the success he did over there with Chicago, but um, we were scoring runs and I did see a, 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 see a future. From going from 2011 to 2012, do, do you think a major difference was just the, the step forward that pitching staff took? Because when you got the game to the seventh, eighth, you know, eighth inning, it was pretty much over. Yeah, Jim Johnson. Um, I think it was Jim Johnson that year that uh, was setting records closing. I think he saved like 50 games or something. I remember 2012 being the year of us winning like almost every extra inning game. I think we lost our first extra inning game. And then I think we went on and won, and I might be completely wrong with the numbers, but like 18 extra inning games the rest of that year. Our one run wins um, were really high compared to everyone else. So I kind of remember that year of, um, you know, close, a lot of stressful close ball games, but um, it paid off. And then we made it to that wild card game and, and, uh, and moved on beating Texas. So, those are kind of the things that stick out in my mind in 2012. To me, it's one of the greatest seasons in Orioles history. Yes, it ends 14 years of losing. And had the team just been one game over 500, it would have been a, a successful season given the, the history of it. And obviously it ushers in you know five really good years in a row. But it's kind of – there were stars on that team. Like, let's not pretend that, you know, Adam Jones, J.J. Hardy, uh, Jim Johnson, uh, you know uh, – Manny eventually coming up. There weren't legitimate stars on those teams and what Chris Davis would hit into the next year. But also, I think about who played second base next to you. The list of names in 2012 alone from Ryan Flaherty, Brian Roberts, Robert Andino, and Omar Cantania. And each one of those guys had like a block of time and actually did well in their block. Yeah, I, I remember that well, too. Um... Brian Roberts at that point was dealing with, you know, his hip issues and stuff like that. And Flaherty, Flaherty was always, in my opinion, a super solid player. Um, and I felt like he should have played more defensively. I thought he was great at second base. Um, Omar Kintani, I think we got him from, was it the Mets maybe? And he was more of a shortstop um, that was like making an adjustment, learning how to play second base at the time. And, um, and I only have good things to say about Andino. That dude was a gamer and, uh, and a great teammate. So um, I, we had to do a lot of extra work um, that year, working on double plays and, and me getting to know each one of them, um, where they like the feeds and, and me getting to know them and, and how they're going to feed to me. So there was a lot of extra work going on there. But, um, yeah, everyone, everyone did their part for sure. Besides getting used to – having different double play partners. What was your typical pregame defensive routine like? Because it was kind of like with Cal, whenever a, whenever a ball would get hit on the infield, he was always in the right spot at the right time, and you were kind of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I guess, a lot of knowing the hitters, knowing the pitchers, um, what the pitchers are trying to do and what the hitters are trying to do. I think that helped me be in the right position. Uh, later on, we had a lot more statistics and uh, graphs that would let us know. And I kind of just remembered if I ever got beat up the middle by somebody, I would remember that. But for the most part, I played uh, a lot of right-handed hitters more pole than most people. Um, 
just because I felt like that was more natural for them to hit ground balls. If they stayed through it and hit it up the middle, it did, it did uh, ring a bell in my mind. I remembered that from even years past if someone did that, but um, my routine was um, not as much. It wasn't quantity as much as it was quality. Um, I probably took, you know, 20 ground balls, maybe 25 ground balls before every game. Um, but I tried to do it more game speed um, versus taking 50 or 75 kind of lackadaisical and not really focusing on it. So um, that, that worked for me and maybe it didn't work for some other people, but that's what, uh, that's what I did. Yeah. Speaking of defense, the three gold gloves for you personally, uh, where does that rank with uh, all your career accomplishments of 13 seasons uh, almost 200 home runs, a couple of all-star games. Where do the gold gloves rank for you? Probably at the top. Um, I mean, even if it was just one gold glove, I think that would rank at the top just because for me, it was always defense. I think defense is what got me to the big leagues and I took a lot of pride in it. Um, so for, for me to win one, I felt like I played pretty good defense in Milwaukee, but being young and um, people not recognizing me because I wasn't flashy, um, I felt like I'd never win one. Uh, I wasn't going to be the guy that was going to get dirty on every single ground ball and, and make web gems and, and all that stuff. So I felt like I didn't get noticed, but um, gold gloves mean everything to me. So it was uh, pretty special to win those three. Bobby Dickerson is recognized as one of the best infield coaches in the game. What type of things did he teach you that, that made you better? He was so good at understanding each one of his players um, and what they needed. I felt like um, there's some coaches that just look at every single human being the same and feel like they need to do this or they need to do that. And it's got to be almost like a robot, but he took what every player was good with and made them better at what they did um, for him. I mean, if I was struggling, um, like if I made an error, I did something that I shouldn't have made he knew that I didn't, he didn't need to come up to me and, and tell me because I was really, really hard on myself. Maybe like a day or two later, I might go up to him and, and say, Hey, did you see, you know, did you see this? And he'd be like, yeah. Um, but I don't think I need to come tell you that because I know, you know, um, what you did, but, um, with other guys, I mean, he's just, he, I agree with the fact that he is one of the best, um, infield guys in the game. Um, I would, I would highly support that. I thought he was uh, by far the best infield coach I ever was around. Going back to the 2012 uh, season, JJ, you mentioned the close games. You mentioned the one run wins. It seemed like a new hero every day uh, and the momentum building throughout that season. And uh, if you go to uh, June 14, 2012, 43,000 at Camden Yards, uh, Orioles, and the Detroit Tigers, Max Scherzer uh, versus Wei-Yin Chen is the pitching matchup. Orioles fall behind a 13-inning game. It's a four-hour and 40-plus minute game. Uh, you hit a home run to tight in the bottom of the 13th inning, uh, breaking a long over for you, uh, by the way. Uh, and then, you know, this is just classic fashion. Taylor Teagarden ends up being the hero on this day, uh, and, and that kind of was symbolic of the season. You know, it's funny when I was asked to, to come join you guys today and it was going to be, um, you know, that game, I remembered Teagarden hitting a home run. That was about all I remember from that game that you mentioned. Um, and I asked, I go, hey, um, out of curiosity, was that Teagarden's like first at bat of the season or like second? Like he was just joined us. I remember him hitting a walk off. And so I Googled it and 
that's when I also heard that um, I was 0 for 28 at the point when I hit my homer. Um, but I didn't remember any of that stuff. I did remember Tea Garden hitting an opposite field home run, though, to, to win the game and the walk-off. When, when you would be in maybe like an 0 for 28 or, or something like that and, and you would go to the plate, did you know it? Or was it just maybe the oh. feeling like I haven't hit, had a hit in a really long time? Oh, I knew it. I knew it. Um, and it weighed on me. And I had a lot of 0 for 20 plus streaks when I played. Um, and they sucked. I felt when I was 0 for 20, I felt like I was never, ever going to get another hit again. Like my confidence was just about as low as, as it could ever be. So, um, and that's probably what led to me being a streaky player. Because if I was 0 for 10, I'd start putting more pressure on myself and more pressure. And the next thing you know, I'd be 0 for 20 something. And um, yeah, I had a lot of those throughout my career. Uh, obviously, it's one of those uh, forever baseball questions, but the difference for J.J. Hardy in a streak or a slump, because you had a lot of hot streaks as well, where you're hitting the ball all over the place. Uh, what is the difference? Is it swing? Is it just upstairs? I mean, is it just timing? It's upstairs. I think it's more upstairs than anything. Um, I think guys that are able to forget um, – a lot better are going to not have as many slumps like that. I wasn't able to do that. I put, I always put way too much pressure on myself and, um, and that led to long slumps, but when you're going good, you're not thinking about nothing and everything just, you know, everything just kind of flows and goes the way that you wish it would all the time. But um, yeah, that's those slumps are part of the game that I don't miss a whole lot right now. When T garden hit the home run, what was your reaction? Because there, there was a point it, it seemed like he, he may not even play during the 2012 season after all the, the stuff he was dealing with. Yeah, I mean, it was um, – I liked T-Garden. He was a good dude. He was a good addition to that team. Um, I remember thinking, man, I didn't realize you had oppo pop like that. Anytime anyone hit uh, <laughs> anyone hit opposite field homers, I'm like, how the heck do you do that? That's crazy. But, um, no, he was uh, – it was, it was a – it was a fun game. I do remember um, being able to celebrate and like, and how special it was for him. And um, that's, I think that's why that's the one thing that stood out in that game when it's been as you're kind of nine years ago. As you're kind of like running through these games where there's a different hero and you're winning these extra inning games. And again, at this point in the season, you guys win that game. You're five games below 500, obviously go off in August and September, but do you start, do baseball players say to themselves, like we're in this thing. Like no one thought we, we were, were supposed to be here. We haven't had a winning season around here in 14 years, for goodness sakes. But we're, we're in it. We can do this. Taylor Teagarden just hit an opposite field walk-off home run the 13th inning. Yeah, um, Orioles magic, right? I mean, it was, one of, it was one of those uh, – it was just one of those things that, yeah, we felt like if we did get into an extra inning ball game, um, we weren't going to lose it. Like it, it was just – when you get on a roll, I think just – everything's kind of contagious when it comes to that. And, and we didn't know what it was like to lose an extra inning game, considering the first one that we lost was, you know, almost what, 18 or 19 extra inning games ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, you definitely get on a roll and you know it. Um, and confidence is big. That's probably mental also. Outside of the, the players' influence on games like that, what kind of influence did Buck Showalter have when you'd go to extra innings or or playing all those one run games where sometimes it can come to the manager making the right decision or the wrong decision. Well, I think with Buck, I think him managing the bullpen was um, maybe his strongest suit as a manager. I think um, he always knew 
the lineup um, on the other team and who would mix and match well with the guys that we had in the bullpen. And then um, obviously having Jim Johnson um, closing the games out uh, like he did, um, that also helps a lot too. I'm surprised, JJ, I heard you said that you get really down. I'm not surprised you said you get down in, in an offer, but you, you strike me as one of the more stoic players I've ever seen who never wears it on their sleeve. But obviously internally it's a lot different. Internally, it was a lot different for me. I mean, I um, I knew that when I was struggling offensively, like I could not bring that out into the field defensively. And it put um, – I feel like the pressure – it put more pressure on me because if I start making errors in the field because I'm struggling – and I learned this probably in double A. I remember, um, you know, I remember struggling offensively in double A and taking it into the field, and that was a quick learning uh, – a quick learning lesson for me and that I would never do that again. But um, – yeah, uh, I guess I guess my facial expressions and the way I carried myself probably wasn't um, how I really felt on the inside. This was a great win for you guys, that, that game that you played against the Tigers. But was there maybe one win or a series of wins or something like that where it was like, all right, we're ready to, to be a postseason team and, and hopefully give uh, some of these other really good AL teams a run for their money? You know, I don't know. I feel like we all had kind of an internal confidence when it came to that. Uh, I don't know if there was one stretch or not that um, that really uh, rings a bell for me that thinking like, oh, this is the turning point and this is where it's going to happen. But I know even in 2011, I think we um, we played pretty well in uh, towards the end of that year. Um, and I feel like uh, that carried over even to 2012. And I think the confidence that Buck, you know, gave all the players. Um, was probably a big deal also but the the biggest win I think that year for me um and what sticks out is that wild card game I mean that was uh, just to make it to that and then to be able to move on and win that game was um was the thing that probably sticks out the most in my mind 2012. And let's not forget also in extra innings game four of the ALDS in the Bronx you hit the uh go-ahead uh, base hit uh, in in extra innings as well to give the Orioles eventually a two to one win, and then in the division series against Detroit in fourteen, uh, was it uh, Max Scherzer you uh, hit deep to left center field for a home run in game one of that series? My only postseason homer. Yeah, I remember that one too. <laughs> uh, that was yeah, a on, on paper that is such that was such a heavyweight fight game. It ended up being an Orioles sweep. But these two teams are are loaded. I mean, they really are. And then obviously. You're going up against uh, Scherzer, Verlander, and Price, three consecutive games. Amazingly, the Orioles sweep it. But that game was a nail-biter until you take Max deep. Yeah, I mean, it, that, uh, that series going into it on paper, um, you know, I think, we, I think we took pride in being the underdogs and kind of proven media wrong. And that was one of the, the prime cases for that because – on paper, we had no chance to win that series, and um, that's not the way we felt. I mean, we felt like this is going to be good. Let's take it to them, and um, it worked out that we did. I know the games were pretty close, but, uh, yeah, it worked out. We just ran into a pretty um, – I don't know how to say it – a pretty uh, good team, I guess, after that. I mean, they were pretty locked in, and um, they couldn't do anything wrong, and um, – Every time we squared up a ball, it just happened to be right at someone. So, um, yeah, that uh, that was a hard that was a hard way to finish that year. When Delman Young comes to bat and he gets that hit, was that the loudest that you'd heard Camden Yards when when you were there? 
that was the loudest I heard any stadium ever and the whole time that I ever played. I mean, that was, um, that was a pretty special moment. I remember, I think even Kirby at first base, you know, get a good lead, get a good lead. You know, he's swinging first pitch. And, um, you know, that probably, <laughs> that probably helped me a lot. I knew I was going to be running as fast as I could, which wasn't fast, but um, it was as fast as I could go, especially that late in the season with everything hurting like it was. And still one of the greatest slides I've ever seen. And you, you watch it back on replay, there's no question you're safe. But you are safe, I mean, however much this is, is how much you, you missed that sweeping tag. Yeah, it was uh, that, that slide where you kind of slide around and you touch the plate with um, your hand. I feel like there's, there's a lot of people that don't like that because, you know, my feet were probably, you know, three or four feet in front of where my hand was. So if I slide there, my feet going to touch home plate before the ball even gets to the catcher. But I think in that case, um, the ball was, I mean, it was bang, bang. And I felt like that was the only thing I had to do. And um, thank God it worked out. I mean, I remember, I remember, um, I think it was Nelson Cruz was um, behind home plate and telling me to get down. And um, when I slid and, and they say safe, I remember him just doing like a backwards somersault, um, like falling. It was, it, was, it was an awesome moment, awesome feeling. What was when you look at that 2014 team and maybe X factor guys, how much did, did the acquisition of, of Nelson Cruz mean to that team? Wow. I mean, he, um, I think more than just his numbers, um, that was a year that he kind of took, uh, Manny Machado, I think scope wasn't scope up then too and doing well. Um, yeah, I think he kind of took some of those guys under his wing and made them, um, better players as well, but, Nelson was such a great teammate um, in a way that he he was the same guy every single day when he came to the field and was upbeat and positive and happy. And um, that really rubs off on a lot of people. So um, that was a huge acquisition for sure. That run, uh, to be a part of it and to kind of bring back winning baseball to Baltimore, uh, you played 13 years in the big leagues. Obviously, your time in the Orioles was a big part of that. But uh, what was that experience like looking back these years later? And do you still keep in touch with a lot of your former teammates who are also a part of that? Because a lot of the same guys, you rarely see it, but you could set your watch to it. You knew who's going to be at third base shortstop, you know, for basically first base, center field, right field almost every day for five years. Yeah, I mean, there was that was a pretty, um, pretty good group, like core, core guys. Um, I think a lot of just even keel guys, you know, guys that didn't get too high or get too low and um, – enjoyed playing the game and enjoyed being around each other. I mean, that, that, that speaks volumes. Um, there's no, there's no stat for it, but it, I think as a player, you really know um, that that helps for sure. You had an opportunity to go to spring training this year, serve as a, as a guest instructor when, when you're talking to the, the guys like Richie Martin, who are, who are newer and, and other younger guys that are on their way up for, for the Orioles. And, and you talk about playing great defense uh, and being a good middle infielder. Uh, what are some pieces of advice that, that you're giving those guys as they try and uh, get some footing in their early uh, big league careers? You know, for me, like that week, I had a lot of fun out there um, that week. I mean, I hadn't done anything baseball related um, for two years. When I was done that last game in 2017, in Tampa, I was, I mean, I was burnt out, um, playing through lots of pain. I wasn't having a whole lot of fun. It was just, it was, 
it was hard. It was really hard. So I got burnt out. I didn't watch any games in 2018. I watched some of the postseason. 2019, I didn't watch any games. Um, and then, um, in fact, I was going to try and get out to the Orioles spring training in 2019, but it didn't work out. And then um, when I was out there, I had a lot of fun. For me, it was more telling the guys what I did and what I felt like helped me. Um, and they could kind of take whatever they wanted from it. I mean, it wasn't like I was trying to teach them how to feel the ball or do anything like that, but it was more of like a, a mental preparation and being ready every single pitch um, and how hard that is. Um, so it was uh, hopefully, hopefully they took something from it. But, um, yeah, I just kind of talked about what helped me, and um, that was about it. Is this something, generally speaking, you might be interested in as you uh, – as you hit the next chapter of your life personally? I wouldn't write it off. Um, I think for now, like I'm really, really enjoying hanging out with my kids and being around every single day. Um, so more than, um, I don't think I'd want to do that more than be around my kids right now, but I'm not writing it off. What is it like uh, watching Iglesias play at shortstop and, and just observing him from, from the time that you spent in Sarasota? He's got unbelievable hands. Um, no question about that. Um, we, I think we were probably the two opposite, most opposite type shortstops in the big leagues when I was still playing um, with a way of being flashy and me being the complete opposite of flashy. But um, there's no denying that he's got incredible hands and it is fun to watch him field balls. Physically for you right now, JJ, because you did have a lot of injuries, especially towards the end of your career and at other times, how do you feel right now at this point in your life? I feel like, um, I don't know, probably like freshman year of high school where nothing hurts. Like I feel like I could go out and just try to throw the ball over the fence without warming up and everything would feel just fine. Um, it is crazy how um, being able to get out of bed in the morning and, and not have to crawl to the bathroom. Um, it just, it changes everything. I mean, I, my back hasn't, hasn't hurt since I've been done. My knees, I'm able to like jog and run around without my knees hurting. Um, it's crazy. I guess a little bit of rest does help. JJ, last one for me. How much do you miss walking up to the plate at Camden Yards and the PA announcer saying, now batting, Jay, Jay, Hardy? I mean, right, just, just you doing that right now gave me the chills. And just every <laughs> single, every single time I did it, um, you know, it, it's something that uh, you can't forget. I mean, it, it meant so much to me, and it was really so cool. Um, even guys that we played against, um, uh, Detroit in 2014 um, is kind of when I think it all started in the postseason there. And uh, it, uh, those guys, like, still come up to me, and when they see me, they'll do that. They'll go, Jay, Jay, Hardy. And I'm like, stop, you know, stop it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it was amazing. and. Um, you know, it's something I'll definitely always remember. Well, JJ, that was really fun uh, looking back at your time uh, with the uh, Baltimore Orioles. We really appreciate it. That was fun. Thank you. Oh, well, appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. Yeah, that's JJ. And a really interesting guy, Jeff. Uh, so cool and comfortable. I was kind of taken aback by, by him explaining that he is someone who would beat himself up internally, especially with offensive struggles. You would just never know it unless he were to tell you that because 
you saw a guy whose facial expressions, his emotions were flatlined, never changed. Kind of something that you'd figure that Buck Showalter would appreciate because that's the, that's the way that Buck was. Kind of, kind of like Bill Belichick almost for, for the Patriots. Like something happens, you, you score a touchdown, you get an interception, anything. He's just, it's the same thing, the same way with Buck Showalter. And it was the same way it was with J.J. Hardy too. But I admired the way that he was able in that 2012 season to work with so many double play partners so effectively. And when you can rotate guys in and out like that, and you're always in the right spot at the right time, and you put in your work before the game, and you know what your routine is supposed to be. Uh, it, it didn't matter who was next to him or who was on the other side of him. You always knew that if the ball got hit to J.J. Hardy, it was probably going to be an out. Yeah, no question about that. And I think we, as baseball observers, lose sight of how much these guys care. And, and also, there's a vulnerability to it. I mean, baseball is obviously it's about losing. It's about failure and all those things. But uh, here's J.J. also talking about being sent down uh, towards the end of his time in Milwaukee, uh, you know, talking about the business side of things, but he's coming off of his best season. But there's a vulnerability to it. I mean, once that happens to you, even after you've had productive years, when you're in 0 for 30 or 0 for 25, how does that not creep back into your head at some point? I mean, J.J. said it. He goes, I, there were times I felt like, I, you know, I was never going to get another hit. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty – you know, even for a guy as accomplished as he was, that's an interesting thing. These professional athletes, we look at them like they are impenetrable from what's going on, but they're not. They're vulnerable like all of us. And that was maybe the most surprising thing about the podcast from, from him discussing that. I got into an 0 for 20. I never thought I was going to get another hit again. And I'm thinking to myself, wouldn't you maybe go back to the last time that you go for 20 and realize that you were going to get a hit again? But it's just, it's a strange mental process that you can't fully understand unless you, you have a conversation with somebody like a J.J. Hardy or, or any player about how you get into those slumps. And yes, I know exactly how many at-bats has been since I haven't had a hit. And it really is eating at me. The streak of the slump. And, and Jeff, you're someone who's called so many professional baseball games, I'm sure you've seen some really good hitters just be unable to square up a baseball. And uh, you've probably even seen some really poor hitters uh, who somehow, you know, had 10 hits over a weekend. So uh, explain this to me. Well, that's the thing. It's, it really is just the way baseball goes. There's, there's no, no way to, to put it. I remember a guy who came up to the Frederick Keys uh, early on in my tenure who was a low draft pick out of a division three school. And he came in as, as basically a filler player that they needed somebody to just, you know, give you a couple of days. This is somebody that I think he'd been with Aberdeen the year before. He'd never hit a professional home run before. He never had any measure of success at the professional level. Suddenly he comes to the Frederick keys and he starts lighting it up. He hits his first professional home run first couple of hits were all extra base hits and suddenly this is somebody who is maybe supposed to be with you for just a little while this is somebody who sticks around for the very end of the season and then the next year he comes right back and it was just that's the way baseball can be and it's not just for for the guys who are stars who you're surprised they can get into a slump uh, it's also the other way around too the players that you have never heard of that somehow just managed to get hot at the right time and it can change the, the whole trajectory of their careers at times. All right. Well, uh, really fun conversation, interesting conversation with J.J. Hardy. Uh, we certainly hope you guys all 
enjoy that. For Jeff Arnold, I'm Brett Hollander, saying so long on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.